Welcome to Make No Bones. I'm Toby Altman. And I'm Emily Barton Altman. Make No Bones is a podcast about poetry and the creative life. Each episode, we ask a poet to read a poem and talk about it. They tell us how they wrote it and explain how it reflects the broader priorities of their work. This week's episode features Olivia Cronk. My name is Olivia Cronk. Olivia Cronk is the author of Louise and Louise and Louise from the Lettered Street Press and Skin Horse from Action Books. She co-edits the journal Petra with Philip Sorensen, tweets at Interoporn, and is an instructor of composition and creative writing at Northeastern Illinois University in Chicago. We talked to Olivia about her new project, Interoporn, her love of the long poem, and the psychedelic powers of similes. When I was in second grade, we learned what poems were. I instantly thought that was interesting and wrote a poem I can't quote to you, but it was about snow, and we had learned, I guess, what similes were, and I described snow as like a pillow broken open on the street, not that, not nearly as articulately as I just said it now, but like, that was how I described it, and it blew my mind. It was like taking drugs. I was just like, I can't even, this is amazing. This is psychedelic to like, to the act of doing that, the lyric moment. And that creation was so exciting to me. And what I later thought, like, probably, like, falling in love is like. And, like, and you know, like, moving out and going to your own apartment. Like, going to Paris. Like, these sort of cliche but real things that happen to us that I think are usually psychedelic. And so I, I loved it. And then I just always wrote poems. And then when I was in college, toward the very end, I had taken creative writing classes and I, I didn't really, I, I guess I thought I was going to be like some generic sense of like an editor. <laughs> I didn't know what that meant. Like I just thought it meant like I'd like go downtown and work in an office and look at newspapers or something. <laughs> like, I don't know what I thought it was, but then I learned what MFAs were and then pursued it that way. And then, you know, how you like slowly come to an understanding of what the literary, the, the living literary world looks like. So um, the, the real experience though, is the psychedelic seven-year-old snow is broken open pillowcase. I felt a little bit tyrannized by the preciousness of a single poem. I just, in some, in some ways, I, I just don't think I'm a good enough poet for that. Like I like things in like big chunks and all together it makes an effect. <laughs> and like, I just, I'm not, I'm not good enough at the craft or I'm, I'm not committed enough to the moment. So then I started always thinking in terms of a longer form. I had my daughter right when my first book came out. And then, of course, there was sort of this weird, hazy, like blurry-eyed period of not writing from having an infant. And then once I could get kind of back to normal, it was just impossible to think about writing a poem. I think for other people, it's the opposite. Like, oh, when your kid's napping, you could write a poem. And if that's your goal, it'll work. But for me, it just was not, I couldn't get into it. Um, so instead, I decided to, to just drop into this longer document. And then my writing, in quotation marks, sometimes could be like just looking in on the document and seeing how it was coming together. And it felt good to have a thing growing instead of an isolated, smaller piece I was working on. But I still have this feeling sometimes, I assume most writers have, which is that 
I just really love a little bit of language sometimes. And I like I so something about the longer form allows you to contain all of that. And I'm I do think sometimes a little bit can stand on its own, but I'm way more interested in how it juxtaposes with something that came earlier, that there's a kind of echo for the reader that could be accidental, and it also could be unplanned on my part. That So the longer form, I feel like, acts as this space to contain the litany or something like that. Um, and the thing I always... the analogy I always like to use is junk drawers which I think are like one of the greatest spaces <laughs> on earth is just anybody's junk drawer or looking around a space at somebody's shelf like those kinds of spaces are most interesting to me because they contain some combination of curated organized information and then the random things that happen and the long form seems to be able to contain that effect In Louise and Louise and Louise, this is sort of accidental, but sort of intentional. I was trying to do three different genres. First, I was trying to work on sci-fi because, honest to one, I love science fiction. Um, I love pulpy science fiction to read. I love high-end science fiction cinema, low-end. I like Star Trek. Like, I'm on board with all of it. And there didn't seem to be any other appropriate space to describe the process of being pregnant and preparing to give birth and then giving birth. Like, I couldn't think of any other sort of milieu for that information, at, at least at that moment. Like, that was maybe sometimes, like, adjacent to horror film. Because <laughs> like, to me, it was so astounding that I was, like, um, you know carrying a human in my body and that it would have to come out that was terrifying <laughs> but I wanted to give birth I wanted to have the pregnancy over with and like move on to the next phase so I think I started composing those thinking about like well science fiction is the appropriate genre in which to write about this experience and in part I just wanted the trappings like it wasn't like a deep probing literary concern but then once I started writing I started thinking about that and I was interested in how information gets quarantined and one of my colleagues at Northeastern uh, had passed on to me her introduction to creative writing syllabus. I think I was going to teach a section of it and I wanted to see what she had set up. And she wrote in the syllabus um, something like, we will not produce science fiction or fantasy or any other genre fiction in this class. This is a literature class. And I was furious. I thought it was so... Um, I, just, I just thought it was so quarantining. Like I, could, I couldn't believe the... Um, the elitism present there and no and then it seemed like a very limiting view of literature of course and it also seemed like you know this is an introduction 200 level creative writing class for a college shouldn't everything get produced and examined and considered so I, I was furious and I was thinking about that at the same time and how we quarantine types of literature so I was working on this longer piece and thinking about that and then I decided to try another genre so I decided to try fantasy, of which I know very little. My father read those like mass market 
fantasy books like he traded them with my grandma and um, I really don't know much about the realm of fantasy but that was interesting to me like this he and my grandmother had had this weird literary relationship that she lived in the apartment building next to ours and so we'd have to take them over and trade them out and then um, I was working on something else I was working on soap opera material and then I realized that that was another genre I was interested in. So I dumped all of these things in to be like the faces of my daughter, Louise, like the stages I went through as she aged, which makes it sound like she's like 30 now. <laughs> she's five. <laughs> but like, like things move so quickly when they're babies, like suddenly they're in a totally new thing with new tricks and you have a new way of looking at the world constantly. And so I was writing and thinking about different things in these very clear like timeline moments that is totally different from what I was trying to do or am trying to do with this current manuscript in that I here I have this more clearly stated inquiry like I I had these ideas I wanted to try to pursue in the manuscript knowing that those might collapse and I would it would turn into other stuff but in my earlier work I was just thinking in terms of genre and playing around with that like you know like setting up props on a stage with words or something and in this one I was trying to <laughs> this sounds ridiculous but I was trying to get at ideas <laughs> instead of just decoration I had a couple of different ideas floating around at once one is that I love interrogation scenes in film noir. I don't, I don't know why, I can't resist it. <laughs> the shadows, I love a femme fatale in an interrogation room. It's just a pleasing aesthetic. I also was engaged in the self-interrogation that everybody is doing, thinking about um, my place as an instructor, especially in composition, especially in an institution that serves primarily Muslim, Latinx populations. I was thinking a lot about, of course, my voice, authority. I worried over my own self-interrogation as um, my attempts to substitute self-interrogation for real radical change in my thinking about my relationship um, to language, my students, poetry, etc. So I was thinking about interrogation films, films and film noir, thinking about self-interrogation, and then um, I was simultaneous, simultaneously thinking about pornography, not um, like the porno videos, <laughs> not exactly that sort of mainstream pornography world, but more um, pornography as a metaphorical space and sort of like the um, compassion pornography that is asked in some film and TV. And then if, if it's exhibitionist to do self-interrogation on the page and how that's a kind of pornography because of reception and invitation. And I was also having last spring a conversation with a student about um, nostalgia as a kind of pornography in the negative connotation, the looking backwards effect and how that's, that's a kind of exhibitionism that um, also values things related to race and gender and class that I don't value, but I'm also interested in that process. The things that happen, for example, to the culture when everybody gets hooked on Mad Men. 
This is from a long piece called Intero Porn. And anyway, Drusilla, did you find my husband in the rain? Did you clench your little ringed fingers into a bite fist and hold it up to your jaw? And had you just cut a record and you were, were you, wearing a low hat on the rainy street, a jug of wine in the trunk? While I was in the forest's wrist, while I was in the snap of it coming on me, where the fuck were you? Did one finger climb out of the fist and summon my man to a railroad room? Yes. I won't listen anymore to the hissed up tapes of Interrogator One. <clears throat> nor to the Friday train, nor the lunch at half past noon, nor the flooded patio. The mashed sound of these things disgusts me when I am filming in red. I come to in the restaurant, and I am mid-conversation in a booth in a discotheque at a handsome mobster's dinner, in a white dress and wet mauve eyeshadow, and when finally everyone finally bleeds onto the carpet, I am filming it red. I am disgusted. Have you ever been in trouble before? Can we get you a bit of coffee? What was the gate? It was a narrow gaze of phallic facial spikes. I went to the cemetery and I went to the river and circled round and counted more than one moon. An alien ball zipped me to the land. I felt intense devastation. And then, so the guide said, I was prepared to consume the entry. I minted my own hands. I peered through the glass and looked for Drusilla or Giselle or Griselda. I lined my legs in pretend stockings. You have to understand that I was not looking for Hellbreed nor for Pussycat Cashmere. I was just caught at the gate with all the other poisons. I'd like to lead a small tour of people to a small hilltop to overlook, to look over at a vile dropping planet, a crashing scene of muted scream to a body with no skin and it rightly zipped into a sleazy bathrobe with dollars printed all over it and the blood force prints foring on the carpet. But all of this happening under my sweeping care. And the tour group? What of the tour group? They would all see something horrible, horrendous, woo-monster, licking at her screams. And then the group would just be screaming and crying, what is it, what is it? Heard the sudden thud of a blow, heard Griselda felt Drusilla nearby, Giselle and Barbara Eden now laughing on the balcony. Griselda was seeing her ruby ring reflected in the glass sliding door and seeing it all so terrible, feeling awful bad in her knee-length cotton hosiery and black high heels and just the bad, bad feelings of why did she get so high, the good first feeling of weed gone now and now too much fear, and you know that almost all girls delight in the jeweled ankle straps. Just put them on, Griselda. When will you? I was at the movies then. If you just pass my purse, I'm absolutely certain I can produce a ticket. The only strange thing about that day was that I swear to God I saw the tackiest demon-faced clown peeking up over the carpet block slide thing at the back of the movie lobby, but then when I asked Drusilla, this is straight-up pointillism and you know it. Is this pointillism? Do you recognize this pipe? Is this bag yours? This bloody bra? Is this pointillism? 
She could see the grass laid right over the room then, in air, in concepts, in quiet, smoke trees, in slow-mo, out the window, smoke, shake. No, no, must get the lawyer in here. When you stepped onto your bus, were you paranoid? Ma, if you read the tabloids about my being in the crime's pocket, my eyeliner smeared to graveyard sex, and my trunk full of bad, bad things, would you call me up and feign surprise? Ma, what about Daddy's knife? You left a message on the machine. Ma, how does this hat look? Miss Otis regrets. God damn it, I want a slowly narrated scene of an empress, and some kind of betrayal, and shiny bangs, and a piece of poisoned glass, and a magical demon. I used to think only big earrings, and then only dark eye makeup, and then filth, and then country music cuteness, or good curation of the living room trinkets. I don't give a shit about cleanliness, but tidiness for the purpose of unseen display, now that is something I appreciate. I'll sweep the room. No, it's better if it is a room with carpeting to vacuum. Blue, pastel, crystalline figurines on a brassy edge. This is not my house. This is how I would set a room to make a porno. I vacuum all morning, crank up the AC, put out a few cherry candies and some vodka lemonade jobbies, and invite the cast to relax. The empress barricades the house in which the dead emperor remains. Everyone is putting on too much lipstick. A torn paper silhouette taped to the wall comes loose in the excess of luscious humidity. You shall say the dentist is here, double canines, and two heads emerging from a cornucopia. Tend to this with your mouth. Every script that comes cross-desk, I think, I've already filmed this one, I've already done this. But no, it's, I've already ripped this off. What are your tricks? Can I steal them? You gotta ask you yourself about breathing into theater, simply sighing the room into pretend. Then you ask about the script, there is so much ambiguity, how did the incantations work with this necktie, this rubber lead, this boa, this saying over, while saying it, how can I make the voice split that way? How does a voice work when it's made of so much ripped off material? When I am reading, am I? Does the voice split that way? Tell the performers to drink right from the room. A reminder people look alive. It's an interrogation room. It's a funeral. It's shit shiny chrome and powdered hounds. Get it. How do you gonna get it? To kill what I kill is fine. Have you ever before seen this gold peacock brooch? Have you ever seen this gold peacock brooch? Have I? Have I ever leaned against a key to the tune of Desmond Decker? Have I ever thumbed a book of future fashions in a cloudy library study room? Have I ever been caught with the likes of you, sniffing out my dog in my red bracelet? Am I wearing a pilled sweater? There's nothing in here for me that is ghastly enough for me. Did you wear this brooch? Wear it as you under the bridge? Were you waiting and seeping and everything? And when she necks her little face out the front windows of our apartment and hollers at the whole block, I see it as Barbara fucking Eden herself who yanks her back in to watch the TV. They both know I'm busy with the film. 
a garden scene, a hand turning into a chain, Giselle and Drusilla added again, red lace on the boots getting simply drowned in fake snow, semen, powdered hounds, what have you. It is her divinely frantic leather plight. It is hers. It is this. Go into each room, sniff out the dirty princess dress, find it stuffed into a leaky corner. Sniff it out. Giselle will get her ass beat down. She came to town. She came all over the neighborhood. Giselle gnawed an apple and wore a spiky collar and listen up. Don't come near my man. Don't whistle his tune. He's got no ears for it now. Stopwatch, bell-bottom, hustle, block party, run, 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 sugar hawk when. What did your mother wear on Monday? This episode of Make No Bones was produced and edited by Toby and Emily Altman in Chicago, Illinois. The music for this episode is by Toby Altman. If you like what we do, check out our website, makenobonespodcast.org, for all our episodes. Or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And please consider rating us on iTunes. It really helps. Join us next time for an interview with Tara Betts.